Welcome to the Reach the Stars podcast. I am your host, John Willoughby Lore, and today my guest is a super, super interesting person. His name is Rob Temple, and he is a stage hypnotist and has very fun red hair. So if you're not watching the video, you need to go on YouTube and watch the video just so you can see his fun red hair. Um, and he does many other things and has figured out a way to be boss as hell as uh, a performer and a hypnotist. And I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. I'm excited. So, um, Rob, do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about you and where you come from and yeah sure absolutely well first of all hey thanks for having me uh, i'm rob i am from the uk as you can probably tell i have this accent i'll be using this accent for the duration of this episode um <laughs> i am 33 at the time of recording this uh, and since i was 16 nearly 17 um i've been lucky enough i guess to travel all over the world uh, almost all over the world uh, performing my hypnosis show hypnotizing people making them do crazy things as a kid i grew up doing magic that was how i got into the world of entertainment i, in fact, I have a deck of cards in my hand now like i'm permanently like wired that way um so yeah i did magic as a kid growing up that's how i got into hypnosis uh, and then eventually decided i would pursue hypnotism as a career and along the way, I, I mean, it's a hell of a story. We can talk about it as we go, if you like. Um, but along the way, I, I transitioned from being a really shy, terrified, awful, socially awkward little kid uh, who like didn't really fit in and was a bit weird and uh, into somebody who now can go on stage in front of a thousand people and not think about it. If I, if I, if I had 10,000 people uh, who paid to see me, I would be equally comfortable there. Um and yeah, and that's been quite a journey along the way and lots of stuff learned. And what, one of the things that really interested me was what it is that makes us as humans tick and how we uh, often hold ourselves back from achieving the stuff that we really could achieve. So I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor of anything. I'm not an academic at all. Um, but I've just had a lot of like in the field experience of how our brains work and uh, how we quite often put limiting beliefs in our way and how we can remove those and change our thoughts to be happier and more confident. And I suppose all the stuff that I've, I've had to do in my own life, but like leveraging the stuff that I've picked up from being a stage hypnotist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, it's funny because I, I love being on stage. I'm more comfortable in front of a thousand people than I am at a party um, where I'm not the center of attention. And yeah, me too. I, as you know, when I think back to how I was as a kid and as a little kid, I was super, super shy. And I used to, my mom was like a hippie and she would have these big hippie skirts and I would like literally like hide in her skirt. And then she made me start reading my poetry to people when I was 12 out in public. And I was super dorky, had very few friends in middle school and in grade school. And it was just a totally surreal experience to be on a stage as, you know, somebody who felt kind of worthless in my everyday life. And then to have people start clapping saying, wow, that was really worthwhile. And, and I love what you had to say. It's just really changed who I was as a person to just say, wow, like maybe I am worth worthwhile and the things that I have are, are worth sharing with people. And man, I'm glad I had that experience, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a real reflection of, of some of the stuff I've gone through as well, you know? So that's awesome. Yeah. So like, what was your first experience being on stage? 
So I, I got into magic when I was four. So just to just to frame this a little bit, I got into magic when I was four. I was at a um, nursery and they had a magician came and did a magic show. And like kids, all kids like magic. But like for me, that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So this guy had a box, nothing in the box. There's a rabbit in the box. Had a handkerchief, handkerchief disappears from over there, reappears over there. This was like mind blowing to me as a four year old. And in that moment, I became hooked with magic. My parents got me a magic kit. I think most ki- kids have had like a magic set at some point. They like play with it for a bit and then it goes away and something else is cool. And um, I just didn't. I just got this magic set and it was all I ever wanted. And then that was the start of what turned into like a hundred different magic sets, all with the same tricks in, but that's fine. And um, yeah, and just adored every second of it. And, you know, suddenly my dad would come home from like a 12 hour day in the office and I'd be like, dad, look at this. This is like, he's trying to eat his fish and chips. And I'm like, look, pick a card. Um, <laughs> and then, um, uh, yeah, and, they were, and my parents were great with it. And then when I was about nine, I was asked to go and do um, a little magic show for a group. Now, I don't know. You guys, you you have girl guides, right? Mm, oh, like Girl Scouts? Yeah, Girl Scouts. Yeah, that's right. So we call them girl guides. And just slightly younger than that, uh, they're called in the UK, they're called brownies. So these yeah, kids are about that. the same age. Oh, you have brownies. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So they're like the same age as me, probably at the time. And um, my stepmom's friend ran this troop of brownies and this herd of brownies. And then I'm I'm sent along to do this to do this show. So I set everything up. They paid me with a magic book, which I've still got on the shelf over there. And um, I set everything up, and I was good to go. I'm about nine ish. They're about nine ish. Uh, there's about thirty of them. This is going to be swell. And then there's um there's the, all the stuff set up. And I'm ready to go. And the woman comes on and she says, yeah, and they'll clap. And then I picked up the first thing ready to go and froze to the spot. Couldn't move, just paralyzed. Uh, couldn't speak, didn't know what to say. Couldn't like I'd practiced and everything. And I've done magic for five years at this point, uh, even though I'm only nine. And I'm like, I'm like ready to do this and just couldn't do it. So after an awkward couple of minutes, my stepmom, uh, who is a retired school teacher turned uh, in her retirement, took up uh, speech and drama training, uh, teaching. She came over and she let, she like delivered all of the sp- the script and the word and everything. And I just like silently, like a really bad, like auction person, like doing an auction, like just demonstrated the tricks. That's the only way I can describe it. Uh, so I got through the end of this 25 minute pile of rubbish and then went out we got in the car and I just burst into tears and I was like suddenly and this sounds like a this sounds like a weird thing for a nine-year-old to say but suddenly this thing that I knew I was going to do for the rest of my life I suddenly realized at that moment in time I can't do it I just I like other people probably could but I just physically couldn't do it like I just attempted to do my first ever proper show sort of and uh couldn't do it no good couldn't do it at all and so that was that was an experience uh and it was that experience, I suppose, that made me, that that set me on this different trajectory of, okay, great. I have to get from where I am now, where I could like show my, like my dad or my uncle Tony a trick, but like I couldn't go outside of that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I needed to be able to figure out as a nine-year-old how to start changing that so that instead I could. So yeah, it's quite a, quite a story. <laughs> so what did you do next? So the weird thing is, um, just through encouragement of the people around me, I I ended up effectively working up to being able to do a show. And so this is like bred a lesson now that I, I talk about a lot, which is the idea of um, 
there's this old thing where people say, if you're frightened of something, then you should just go and do it. Like if you're frightened of heights, just jump out of a plane. That'll cure you, your phobia of heights. Or if you're frightened of spiders, just hold a spider. It'll be fine. Uh, and it's a lovely idea, but it doesn't work in practice because you just can't, you can't just do it, right? You just can't do it. That's not how that works. There's a reason why I haven't done it because I can't. Um, and that's not a limiting belief or anything like that. It's if I if I wasn't frightened of spiders, I'd be holding one. But you know, if I or I'm not if I wasn't frightened of heights, I would hurl myself out of a plane. So the idea of just do it is fine in principle, but doesn't work for most people most of the time in practice. And so what I realized, well, I didn't realize at the time, but looking back and reverse engineering what happened, what I have realized is that I said, well, if I can't do a show for 30 people, that's okay. I'll just have to keep doing it for two people. Like I'll do like, you know, close up magic or something. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lesson in this that anyone could pull out of anything really with starting a business or going to a job interview or dating or anything, which is if you're terrified of doing the thing, um, find the smallest slither of it that you are possibly comfortable with and do that first for a bit. And what happens is really m- remarkable is I found myself that if I was doing a, like a card trick for two people, that was fine. Like my parents or something. And then my uncle would come round, and I don't know my uncle as well, but I could, you know, I could show him a trick and that was all right. That wasn't too bad. And then that, that got to a point where I was so comfortable with that. I could do it with my eyes closed. And then the next thing that would happen is maybe we're at a family wedding and somebody would say, Oh, uh, Derek, come here. And Derek comes over and they say, show, show Derek that trick. And suddenly I'm doing a trick to somebody I've never met before. And that's a little bit more scary, but it's not horrendous because there's still only one of him or two of them. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you become so comfortable with that, that if you just bumped into anyone anywhere and they find out what you do, I could just say, oh yeah, well, that's fine. Pick a car and I can do the trick. And then eventually that becomes four or five people you don't know. And you become very comfortable with that. And the way, the way I sort of equate this baby steps mentality is that it's a little bit like if you're frightened of heights and you've got a ladder against a wall and the ladder's like old and beaten up and really rickety. And somebody says, I want you to climb the 10 rungs of the ladder. You might think, well, I'm terrified of heights. I can't be 10 10 rungs up this really rickety ladder that looks like it's going to fall over on me. And then people would say, well, what you can do is you could climb up one rung because, I mean, everybody on earth would be all right being one rung up the ladder. You're only a foot off the ground. It's not going to hurt if you fall. You're not very high. That's fine. And eventually, after a little while, you climb one rung up the ladder. It doesn't seem too much of a stretch to be two rungs off the floor because, well, if you just jump up that next little bit of height, you don't. it's a little bit scary, but you don't need a lot of confidence to do that. And the truth is, it's not confidence you need at that point. It's courage because you can't just fake confidence. You can't, people say fake it till you make it. And there's a, a little bit of truth in that. But yeah, you have to you have to have some courage just to, just to do that. So you need a little bit of courage to climb up the next rung of the ladder. And then eventually that becomes normal. Like when you're on that second rung, like this is, I could stay here all day long. This is totally normal to me. And then eventually you just need a little bit more courage, but you don't need more courage. You need the same bit of courage that got you from the first rung to the second rung to get from the third rung, the second rung to the third rung, because you're now totally at calm and peace being at the rung two and so on and so forth. And eventually that just spiraled. Um, and every positive experience reinforces the next positive experience, as long as you only take in one step at a time and one rung up the ladder. Uh, probably a similar experience to you, I suppose, in terms of like going out, getting applause, and that feels good. And, and you know, for anyone who's not a performer, uh, you get applause in other ways. You know, you get the positive reward and the positive um, feedback of whatever it is that you do going forward that makes you realize, oh, actually, I, I can do this. So for me, that was the uh, that was the experience that took me over that next few years, um, and was just getting out of there and and, and doing it because I think you know confidence comes from two things for me. It comes from evidence and it comes from reps. 
And so the evidence was, well, I showed two people a trick and they liked it. Chances are if I showed 30 people a trick, they'd probably like it. But that's that in its own right, that doesn't, there's not quite enough evidence that in its own right doesn't get me over that threshold. Mm-hmm. But if I take that combined with the fact that I'm doing it lots, and of course, reps only counts if you're increasing the difficulty. So I could take a pen and I could do bicep curls with it all day long. It's not going to help. Whereas if I slowly increase the weight of that, of that weight, that's and continue to do the reps, mm-hmm. it might only be 10 reps a day, but over a period of a week, that's 70 reps and the weight's getting heavier. Um, and so for me, it was, it was a mental workout without realizing it. It was a mental workout of just doing evidence and reps, evidence and reps, evidence and reps, and then, and then making it increasingly more difficult. And if you get those three things together, that, that just catapults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, obviously the first time I went to go read for, for people, uh, I was terrified and I had, I had my little paper up, you know, and my mom was like, go ahead and read. And I'm like, like shaking in front of me like crazy. And, um, it definitely took a while to kind of get over the, the, the jitters, um, and the adrenaline of being in front of a, a crowd of people. And, I remember telling my mom before I went up there, I was like, Oh, I'm so scared. I have so, you know, I'm so afraid of doing this. What if they hate me? Everyone at school hates me and all this craziness. And she said, the only difference between nervousness and excitement is fear. And the way that it just hit me and and she's like, you're really, if you're up on a stage in front of people, as long as you're not like a big time politician that has people who hate you or whatever. I mean, the likelihood that something really bad and terrible is going to happen is pretty low. And she's like, you're way more likely to be so excited about, you know, as long as the thing that you're going on stage to share is something that you love and that you're really passionate about and you are telling the truth, it's something that you feel strongly about, then you're not afraid of that. You're just so hella excited to share that with the people who are there to listen to it. And now every time I go on a stage, I'm like, oh, yes, I'm so excited. And man, pandemic has been tough for me. There's no Same. stage. So <laughs> yeah. like, what do I do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think I think a lot of the time we mistake, you know, fitness coaches, which I am not, but fitness coaches will often tell you that the all like healthy eating coaches will often tell you that when you are when you when you've got like a craving for snacks, if you just go and like down a bottle of water, that can really take the edge off. Because a lot of the time what we're actually is apparently we're actually dehydrated, not hungry. Uh, and I think a lot of the time emotionally we and, and uh, f- um, sort of psychologically, I think we mistake our feelings quite a lot. Uh, like that. I think a lot of the time we think we're anxious when we're actually excited. We think we're nervous when we're actually excited. Um, And if you stop to acknowledge that and really acknowledge it, it takes away a lot of the negative power that that negative, seemingly negative emotion seems to take. Yeah. And I definitely still get that adrenaline rush going on stage, like that same feeling. But for me, I'm just like, I live for that feeling. I mean, it's like the runner's high, you know, like the performer's high is just, Oh, there is no other, there is no other than like being on a stage and you give the audience all of this and they give 10,000 fold back and you get to like hundred percent pull in all of that energy from the people who are watching. And, and when you see someone out in the crowd and you like connect with their eyes and you can tell that they're just like really feeling whatever is happening on the stage and whoo, man, I wish I could do that every day. <laughs> I love that feeling. Let's it's get this great. pandemic out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's part of why I started my podcast. I was like, I need people. 
I need an audience. So I built one. <laughs> totally. The stage has just moved. That's all that's happened. The stage. Yes, moved. You, know, you just can't see the audience. They're there. You can't see them. You just see them on like the download numbers. So, you know, they're out there somewhere listening to you. <laughs> Love so, it. Tell me more about how you went from doing magician stuff to becoming a hypnotist. Yeah. So I was, I went about doing that and that was it. I was entering like magic competitions nationally and doing well. And like, this was going to be the thing. And I was 14 when I saw a hypnotist and, um, initially I didn't know if it was, I a, didn't know if it was real. Uh, cause as a magician, you sort of naturally look for the trick in everything. And my dad's quite cynical and he thought, no, oh, I don't think this is real. And then I started looking into it a bit more and realized actually there must be something in it. And uh, I decided I wanted to learn it. So I thought if there is something in it, I want to learn it. And my dad paid the hypnotist to come and like teach me how to do it. There's no official training or anybody like that. Any hypnotist who tries to tout qualifications is, is making it up. Um, they're just bits of paper that somebody's printed off with a badge on them. And uh, yeah, so I decided to do it. So I studied it for a couple of years between the age of 14 and 16. And uh, then when I was 16 and a half, because I just figured nobody's going to take a 14-year-old hypnotist very seriously as a grown-up. Um, so when I was 16 and a half, uh, not that that's much better, I thought, right, I'm going to give this a go now. I never hypnotized anyone before. Had no evidence if, if it could work. Um, and contacted a bar nearby, a few bars nearby, and said, hey, can I come and do a show for free? I think I sent out like 18 letters saying, can I come and do a show for free? And um most of them ignored it. So they obviously thought it was a scam or something. And then two said, yes. So I went along and did them and they packed out their, their pub and I went and did the show and uh, it went really, they both went really well. And then they hired me back actually uh, to go and do more shows. Um, and yeah, it was great. And that was it. And the, uh, I don't know if it was because I'd done magic for longer. I don't think it was, but I, I got to a point after about two years of doing them side by side, uh, I reached a point where I woke up on the morning when I had a magic gig to do and I was like, oh, okay, I'll go and do it. And I woke up on the morning when I had a hypnosis gig to do and I was like, yes, can't wait, dead excited. And that that buzz has never gone. And uh, again, that was 19, I'm 33 now, I can't do maths, but a long time ago. Um, and 2000 shows in. And uh, yeah, I still get that excitement. And I think it's partly because I like to, I like the um, living on the edge of not knowing quite what's going to happen. Like when you're a singer, you go out on stage, you have good nights and bad nights, and you, but you're going to sing the songs, even if nobody's listening. Uh, with my show, it's me and a microphone and a box of stuff and, and the audience. And, and like, we pull the show out of that. And I like the, I like the not quite knowing what's going to happen mm -hmm. and how it's going to go. Yeah. The spontaneity of it, just like, it's totally. funny because I think so, in some ways, if I were to do shows like that, it would make me crazy um, to like not know what's going to happen. Um, but I've always, my whole life, I've always loved like magical things and, and mystical things and where other people look at a magic trick and they're like, oh, I got to figure out how do you do that? And I'm like, I don't care how you do it. Just do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see it again. It's so cool. Um and I'm all about just like, whatever. Just, I just believe it. I'm like, I want to see, I just want to, I love the illusion of however it happens. And, um, you know, believing in things that are magical is, is kind of my MO. <laughs> That's a much better place to be. You know, cynic. why not believe in it? You know, it's fun to believe in it. So just go for it. Um, so once you started doing bar shows when you're like 16, which you need to send a picture of that. Like if you have a picture of it, like you're, yeah, it wasn't cool. It wasn't cool. That's, that's for so sure. Cool. But I'll find a picture. So cool. I mean, how many people out there who have a dream of doing something when they're a kid and they still think about it and they 
go to they go you know they grow up they go to college they get a job they do the adulting thing and they still keep thinking about that thing they really wanted to do as a kid and they never did it and you know then they realize that oh i'll do that when i'm retired and then they like work themselves to death and never get a chance to do it and i just think that it's so awesome that you're like i really like magic i'm gonna do that and i'm nine (laughs) 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 i think that's so dope i mean man it's really I think uh, I think you need to have a why not attitude in life. Like I think uh, so many people are, are so busy looking for reasons to do stuff. Like they're so busy like, well, when the time's right, when the stars are aligned, when I'm retired, when I've got more time, when my finances are better, when this is that, when the kids are older. Like people are constantly looking for the reasons like when they'll do something. And I just think you should always just, well, what just say why not and just do it. And then that's gonna that's gonna like there's no harm in doing it. I know. Uh, I had an interesting situation when I got to 18, 17 and a bit uh, and was at the decision point of like, do you go to university and spend four years getting qualifications and debt or do you not go down that route? Everyone's always told me as an entertainer, as I've grown up through magic and stuff, all of the, like the elders, the advisors of magic circle and people would say you should um, get like a proper academic qualification, have a job for a bit, then try entertainment on the weekends. And if you work really hard, you might be able to build it up to a point where you can quit your job. And then if you keep working hard, you might do better than a job. You might not, you might just maintain it and then you can keep going, hopefully. But if it ever doesn't work out, you can always go back to the job. And I remember my dad said, he's a really hardworking uh, bloke. When I got to that point, he said, well, why don't you just take a gap year and like have a go, see how the entertainment thing goes. Like loads of people do gap years, just take a gap year, see how it goes. And if it takes off, hopefully you'll never need to go to university. And so I think, um, and, and actually looking back now, he also said, I, I, like, I don't think you would ever have used the degree. Like, I think you would have always, I think you were always going to find a way to make this work rather than, rather than have a job and go through the, go through the grind and the process. So I think um, you have to you have to be surrounded by people who also see potential in you as well. I think. Yeah, I mean, growing up, my I, all I had a lot of parents when I grew up. My family structure is kind of crazy, um, which is the story for another day. But the way that I grew up, all of my parents had some kind of creative thing that they really loved to do but it wasn't what they did for work. And they always had to go to work and then say, Oh, I hate going to work. And so as I got older, I was like, well, I don't really know hundred percent what I want to do as an adult, but I don't want to do that. I definitely don't want to like spend my whole entire day, like hating my job and hating the fact that most of my day is taken up by something that I, I don't enjoy that doesn't fulfill me and leaves me very little time for the things that does make me really happy and full of joy. So when I went away to college, uh, I had initially wanted to be a writer as I'd been doing poetry forever at that point. And I set foot on the campus and I just was like, oh, man, I need to like do more than just writing. I need to make stuff. And I ended up making up my own major where I put entrepreneur, business and creative art integrated as one major. So I was like, well, I want to be an artist and I don't want to be broke. How do I do that? Right. So I was really excited to be able to do what I love for a living And I always find it really inspiring and entertaining to talk to other people who get to actually do what they enjoy all day long. Um, And so I was wondering if you can give people a little bit of advice as to um, how to get up the guts to quit your job to do the thing that you love for people who didn't decide to do it when they were nine. (laughs) 
Yeah. And you know what, once you're down that road, it is harder to do. Like once you are down that road, you know, because you've, you've now got something, you know, you've got something that feels like you could lose something. Like that's for sure. Like when you're starting out and you haven't got anything, it, there's nothing to lose. You might as well have a go. So I understand the fear and the anticipation of doing this a bit further down the line. I think for me, the big thing would be that what you want to do is you want to look for control. So one of the questions that's been raised a lot is, you know, what if, especially for people who are doing like artistic stuff, like either performance or poetry or anything like that, is a lot of the time that a lot of the responsibility for, for what it is that you're going to do probably rests with somebody else. So a lot of it's going to rest with the market. A lot of it's going to rest with an agent. A lot of it's going to rest with your customers. A lot, like whatever it is you want to do, if you want to start a business and do the thing you love, a lot of it, the, the responsibility for your success or failure lies in the hands of somebody else or so it appears. Especially like a great example of this is an author. So like if somebody writes a book and they want to get it published, then like they might send it to, I don't know, a bajillion publishers who all say no or ignore it, the, the book proposal. And then like, that's, that's a grind. And then that you have to work in a coffee shop or something to like fulfill the, you know, to pay the rent while you're doing that or the mortgage while you're doing that. And I think a lot of the time we so frivolously wait for somebody else to make a decision to allow us to do the thing or wait for somebody else to put us in a position where we can do the thing. Whereas actually there's a lot of control can be taken in your own, in your own hands. So I remember years ago, as an example, years ago, I, I, I knew I wanted to transition from performing at events and in venues to doing like a theater show where people buy a ticket, they come and see me, they're only there to see the show and then they go like, that's it. I didn't want to be like the professional interruption that like turns up in the middle of the cocktail reception and like starts. So uh, the way that would typically work is that I would pitch to a load of production companies and one of them would say, yeah, we like it. And then they would pay me a fee and there'd be no risk on my shoulders. I would just go out and do the show. They'd do all the marketing and all the work and all the advertising and everything. And that was it. And I spent years waiting for that to happen, not pitching. So I, admittedly, I wasn't doing everything I could. I wasn't sending the demos off to people. Like I was like, literally just trying to get attention mm -hmm. and, uh, and it wasn't happening. So I could keep doing that. And if I did, I'd probably still be doing it now. Um, until I made the decision, thought, well, I could just do it myself. So I could just like figure it out as we go. So I think a lot of the time, the first step is just to take responsibility and realize that everybody else is too busy, like messing up their own lives and things to do anything with yours. So like, it, it's better to just like have a go and figure, figure out as you go. And I think that if you start to put that plan in place and you start to say, another great example of this is obviously pandemic times have hit. So lots of my friends who are entertainers are now obviously out of work they're dancers and singers and actors and comedians and that kind of thing. Some of them are now working in a job somewhere in a call center, answering the phone or uh, in like a coffee shop or something like that. Some of them have just started dance workshops online and like have like turned that into an income, probably not making quite as much as they were when they were working full time as a dancer, but like, okay, like it's better than working in a, like probably replacing a coffee shop income and it's okay. Like it's, they're, they're enjoying doing it It's and it's fun. So I think a lot of the time we are so, as kids, going back to what you said before about, um, you know, as, as a kid, we're like, we're like raised to believe in magic and raised to believe you can do anything and Santa Claus and the Easter bunny and like all of this. And then there's a really sharp point. And I don't know where it is. Late childhood, early teens, there's a really sharp point where kids just hit a brick wall of happiness and, and, uh, and encouragement most of the time in most of the world. Like suddenly it very seriously becomes serious hard work at school, proper exams. You're going to have to have a job. You're going to be in university in like 10 minutes. So like hurry up. Uh, and, it, but it, and it really comes out of nowhere. Kids are kids. And then suddenly they're preparing to be adults and everything's not 
not fun anymore. And I think we, um, we raise kids to believe in magic and the tooth fairy and all of that. And then suddenly it's gone. And we have no, generally adults have no capacity to believe in like really good things. Like the, the fact that they can do well and that they can be a princess in a castle. And like, mm-hmm. it's so taken away from them sharply that I think if we can give ourselves a little bit of that back, that belief of, oh, anything could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but only if I put the work in to get it to happen. So I think the first step really is just take responsibility and realize that nobody's going to do it for you. Like nobody's ever going to come home and say, right, off, we're going to start you a business and I'm going to make it happen and it's all going to work and you're just going to go for it. And also realize that it's not going to be a straightforward path, you know, but that's okay. Cause like the learning part of it is a really important because it breeds resilience and it breeds strength and it breeds trust in your own gut instinct to be able to figure it out. Um, and that's all really powerful. But the first step is just have a go. Even if you do, even if you do it side by side with your job, like even if you have a go side by side and you try and stretch it across that way. And also I think that the other assumption is, I think a lot of people always assume that it's too late now. Like, oh, well, I should have done it years ago and I didn't do it years ago. And now it's too late. And it, it just never is. If you're alive, it's not too late. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I definitely had to get my fair share of day jobs um, over the the course of when I officially started my business as a a college kid and um, to where I am now. And I it was really interesting because I didn't quit my full time gig until after I had kids. And it was really simultaneously the easiest decision, but the hardest transition to go from getting a steady paycheck and having benefits and, um, and paid vacation or whatever from my, my jobby job to all of a sudden, you know, my fun side gig that I'd done, uh, you know, as the, my escape from corporate bullshit, you know, um, was all of a sudden, this is my career. And if I want to get a paycheck and I want to support myself and support my family, that I have to think of it differently. And it's, it's weird because there's this kind of stigma around the world of if you really, really love what you do, then how can you justify also being paid really well for it? You know, that like, oh, you get to enjoy your job. You should be punished by like not making a living. You should be a starving artist or like a shit performer, you know? And that's the bitterness that's risen in our world. And it it stops at a certain point when you get like, if you look at hyper celebrities for the most part, like everybody throws money at reality TV stars and like praises them. And I saw a guy the other day and I'm not really in the social media world, but I saw a guy the other day who's apparently got something like something like, I don't know, 20 million followers on YouTube or 200 million subscribers on YouTube or something anyway. And he was giving him a tour of his new $10 million house that he just bought. And this kid's like, 12 or something and he's just bought this amazing house he's probably 19 and uh, and the whole video is him going and like you know it's the fact that you're you're the fact that i bought this house is purely because you subscribed to me on youtube so there is a point at which when you hit like mega stardom that all of that bitterness goes away but there's a massive chunk in the middle like whether whether 80 percent are between the ones who are just starting and the ones who are who are like super successful, the ones who are just earning a living, do it, doing their craft. Uh, yeah, there is a there is a certain degree of bitterness that you get to lie in if you want to have a lie in. If you don't have kids, you get to have a lie in if you want to, and you can work your own hours, and that's good. And you're doing the thing you enjoy and getting paid for it for sure. Mm-hmm. That's just funny. So, how did you go from doing 
just going out and doing stage shows and stuff like that to what you're exactly doing right now. So it's a weird thing, really. I started to notice an increasing number of people around me who were like just a bit fed up with their life in every respect. And, and, and that was, this is like 10 years ago. Um, and I have, I was distinctly happy. I am distinctly happy. Uh, and I remember thinking, well, I'm no different to them. I'm definitely not better than them. Like there's loads of people who are smarter than me, earning more money than me. And they're just down in life. And I started to realize that actually it all comes down to, down to the way you think and the beliefs that you hold about the world, about yourself, about your place in it, about what you can do and what you can't do. And, uh, and then it was in a conversation with a friend of mine who, who made me realize that actually that's what I play with on stage every night is people's beliefs. So when somebody gets up on stage and they believe for the next three minutes that they are, I don't know, Madonna, like they believe with every bit of their soul that they are Madonna. It's not like they're pretending like if in that moment for them, for that three minutes, they are Madonna and they will perform with no fear, with no inhibitions. Like it's literally because they, you know, why would Madonna be frightened of doing a concert? I mean, sure, I'm sure she has her own fears and demons, but why would she like, she's Madonna, the queen of pop. So up they get and off they go. And it made me realize that, over time, like a lot of the time, if I do a show and then like I'm in a bar, somebody will, oh, there's the hypnotist. And they'll come and say, oh, will you hypnotize me now? And the answer to that is always no, but I can like demonstrate what it feels like with something called waking trance. It's basically being able to use the concepts of hypnosis without putting somebody to actual sleep. So you can do simple things like stick their hand to a table or like, you know, just like tricks with hypnosis. And, um, I quite often do that. And so the the line between what you actually have to be fully hypnotized for and not is quite blurred. And I realized that effectively you can have an effect on somebody's thoughts and beliefs and feelings without hypnotizing them. And so I became really obsessed with, okay, great. How do I take the principles? So for the last 10 years, I've really been thinking, okay, let's study everything that happens and everything I know about hypnotizing people on stage and making them do crazy things. And let's figure out how do you take those principles and literally understand the thinking behind them to be able to like change our thoughts with some of the stuff we've talked about here already. And, you know, the idea of, of changing our beliefs, because if you can do that, you can do anything. Like if that person for those three minutes really believes that she is Madonna, then if you want to be happier, more confident, which is the journey I've been on, uh, you know, more resilient, more motivated, anything like you can start to change the thoughts that power that bit of your life. Mm-hmm. So So I became obsessed with it. And then I started Success Unlocked, which is my podcast. And then I sell like courses and programs to help people figure all of that stuff out uh, and and apply those techniques in their life. That is so cool. So during the pandemic, obviously there are no big giant fun stage shows. Um, Have you done like smaller Zoom hypnotizing shows or something like that? Like, is that a thing you can do? No, the only thing I have done is I did, there's a theater near me where I know I normally close my tour. Uh, it's like a beautiful 1100 seat Victorian theater. And, um, they're, a they're not a charity. They're like a trust. They're like, a it's a, it's, it's the, old, it's, I think it's the oldest working Victorian theater in Europe. Like they're a, so they're a big deal. Um, and, uh, obviously money's tight for theaters right now. So I did a show for them, uh, where we had like say five people 
we volunteered, like we put out a thing saying we've, we need five people who want to take part. And we got them on stage two meters apart. And I was two meters apart from them at all times. And we had an, a small socially distanced audience of like 40 people in a, in a thousand seat theater. And it was live streamed on YouTube for free and people could donate to the theater if they wanted to. So uh, we did that a few weeks ago. That was a lot of fun, a logistical nightmare, but a lot of fun. Um, but no, apart from that, my entire tour has been pushed back 365, 365 days to next next autumn instead. I mean, well, good thing you have all these coaching programs to like, keep, well, uh, keep the dough rolling while everything is shut down. You know, it's nice to kind I of- think. I think one of the things that humans are really good at is compartmentalizing their skills and not figuring out, well, I'm really good at this and I can use that skill to do this thing over here and I can put that over there. I think we're really good at saying, well, we're good at that in that situation. We're good at this in that situation. And we just isolate everything that we can do. I think one of the best bits of advice that I could ever give anyone is figure out how you can use the stuff that you know you are good at in this thing over there to empower everything else that you do somewhere else. So I think if you can if you can transition those skills from one place to another, then that's really powerful. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm curious if you could give me like a can you, like when you hypnotize somewhat hypnotize people in the bar, can you do that via Zoom? Uh, I've never done it. In theory, it's possible. Uh, I see it as a slightly slightly unethical because if you had any form of abnormal reaction, which happens from time to time, uh, I can't do anything about it. So uh, it is a thing like Zoom gnosis or Skype gnosis is a thing uh, when Skype was still cool. Um, it was definitely a thing, but uh, yeah, not not something that I do. Okay. Um, I was just curious because it's like, so interesting to me and I'm like, you're so far away. I would love to do that, but... <laughs> You're right. I don't want to be like stuck in my office having to go pick up my kids and be like, I'm not a person anymore. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's far away at the minute, though. Everyone's two meters apart with a yeah. mask on. Yes. But, you know, there's there's two meters apart and then there's, you know, the United States to the UK. It's pretty far. Um, exactly. So in some ways, I'm kind of grateful for the pandemic because it made me start this show. And now I get to like meet all these interesting people and talk to them all over the world, which <laughs> people didn't really think about doing too often before they had to. And I think it's super cool. Um, so at the end of all the shows, I ask everyone the same five questions, dun, 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 five question time. Okay. So question number one, tell me about a single moment or one experience that changed who you are today. Oh, a good question. A single moment or a single experience you say, mm-hmm. um, I think there was a, there was a moment a couple of years after that show for the Brownie Troupe, um, I changed, I went from like uh, junior school to high school. So I was 11. And uh, I remember I entered a talent competition at school. And so I'm at the youngest end of the school here because obviously kids in the school are 11 to 18 and I'm like the youngest and I'm one of the youngest end based on my date of birth. And um, so for the first time, I was going into a new school, a new place. And within about a month of joining the school, went into this talent competition. And there's kids there who are in the the sixth form and they're like 18 and 17 and 18. And um, I went on stage to do this trick with three bits of rope. And uh, I'm halfway through the thing and I ended up in a tangle and I basically realized it hadn't worked. And um, I remember this, I was this, again, still a really shy, terrified kid, probably shaking. And I remember saying in front of a, a hall of like 400 other pupils, almost all of them older than me. And I just went, oh, that hasn't worked. And I dropped all the ropes to the floor and the audience laughed. And I paused for a minute and it was only when I realized they weren't laughing at me 
they were laughing with me in the situation. So mm-hmm. I picked it up and I just did it again. And this time it got it right and it all worked. And the applause was enormous. And uh, I didn't win the talent competition, but I do remember thinking at the time that the way that we feel that other people feel about us is quite often completely warped. And sometimes when we think somebody doesn't like us or somebody's having a go or somebody's laughing at us or something like that, um, a lot of the time that's just not true. It's just our perception of that situation in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I love this show. Okay. Number two, when you feel defeated or overcome, what do you tell yourself to keep going? Um, that the easiest thing to probably do would be to give up. Uh, the second easiest thing to do would be to just pivot slightly and figure out how I can circumnavigate whatever that bump in the road was. Uh, that's probably one of my biggest strengths is pivoting really quickly when stuff uh, doesn't work. Cause Nobody gets everything right 100% of the time. Most people get most things wrong most of the time. The quicker you realize that and be prepared to pivot, the better. Sorry, this is a totally not on the list of questions, but are you more of a, I see something in front of me, some type of opportunity, I'm just going to jump at it and see where it takes me kind of person? Or are you like, like to have a plan and say, okay, there's that thing that I might be able to do that. Is it going to make sense here? Is it going to make sense here? Like, do you check all the boxes or did you just go for it? No. So I, I figure it out as I go because you can't, you can't know what's around the corner anyway. So every, everything you're going to do to plan for it is potentially guesswork at best. So I figure, well, I, like, I think I'm, I'm very much a quick reactor, so I'll just go for it and I'll just see what's happening. And the minute there's danger, I'll just slow down a little bit and be prepared to pivot. Cool. I do that too. Um, number three, tell me about a way that you overcame a failure or a mistake and what you learned from it. You've kind of already said this in like five different ways, but pick a different one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I started my personal development brand four times, uh, because each time I got a little way down the road and with a different, under a slightly different brand name. And like, I just changed the name of the website and the podcast. And like, it, like it didn't always have a podcast, but it did twice. And like just down the road realized, oh, this is not, this is not what I want it to be yet. And rather than like just giving it a lick of paint, I stopped and it took like months to just like talk myself back into like trying to get back into the voice of it all. Um, so I think, uh, it's interesting for me now looking back and going, Oh, now, now that it's starting to take off and it's starting to work, like I figured that out, but it was only after this is the fourth time. So after three times of like just having a go at it and getting it wrong and building a bit of an email list of people who were going to follow my stuff and then having to like, basically just like abandon them and chuck them back in the sea and then go out fishing again. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, All right. So number four, what one trait or habit is most responsible for keeping you on track? Um, I rely a lot on like accountability to other people. So like uh, in a different business that I have, I have a business partnership with my best friend. So like that works really, really well because he's very much a box ticker and like a number cruncher and plans everything and overthinks everything and is there like 15 minutes early for everything and like operates that way. And I'm the opposite of that. And that works really well. Uh, I encourage him to be a little bit more fly by the seat of your pants, but he encourages me to like be on track. So for me, accountability is really key to make sure that I say I'm going to do something and then it gets done because other people are relying on that to happen. So accountability. Yeah. It can be difficult to put yourself into a position where you have accountability because a lot of people are solopreneurs and they're just working by themselves all the time. And, um, 
for anybody who's in that boat, you should get accountability partners of other people who are also in that boat so you can hold each other accountable to stuff. Okay, so number five, I think you also answered this inadvertently before. Anyway, um, you must be reading my mind. Number five, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten and what advice would you give to other people? I think the best bit of advice that uh, has ever been given was, it was definitely my dad saying, take a gap year and see what happens for sure. I think to put it slightly differently and to take something else was, um, there was a, a really famous magician in the UK, had a TV show on the BBC for 20 years, a guy called Paul Daniels, not famous anywhere else, but in the UK. And he uh, he always said, um, if so, like if a client inquired about something, like, can you do this thing? And obviously he got some really big gigs. Like, you know, we've got this, you know, we sell diggers. Can you come and do a thing at our conference and make one of our giant like diggers disappear? Is he always said yes. And then thought, I'll figure out the details later. Like, I'll just say yes. Now I can't, I can definitely do it. I'll figure it out later. Um, and I think that's, I, I sort of live a lot of my life by, we'll just say yes. As long as I want to do it, like I'll always say no, if I don't want to, but if I want to do it, I'll just say yes. And we'll figure out the details as we go. Never oversell, just just know that you'll figure it out. <laughs> That's awesome. I totally do the same thing. That's the reason I started making paper flowers in the first place. Somebody, <laughs> somebody emailed me and they're like, hey, can you make paper flowers? We saw these ones on Etsy and we want those, but we want to shop local. And I'm like, totally. I had no idea how to make paper flowers. I was just winging it. Um but yeah, now that's like the main bulk of what I do all day long is teach people how to make flowers. Um, so uh, that's the end of the five questions. And usually it's at the end of our show. Is there anything else that you want to add? Anything you want to talk about that we didn't cover yet? No, this has been awesome. Just that like, I think people have so many limiting beliefs and stuff that gets in their way that really holds them back from doing what they could do. And a lot of the time, if you just dig into those thoughts and realize that those thoughts are more happening to you than being done by you, um, that means you can really start to, because of outside influences of the world and everything you've ever seen growing up and everything, um, you can really start to analyze your thoughts and realize, actually, do you know what? If we dig away at this here, there's probably not as much strength to those thoughts as I thought there was. And therefore, I can turn them around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yay. I love this show. Okay. So can you tell everyone where they can find you on the internet? Yes, absolutely. So I've, I have a podcast. Uh, if you're listening to this, you probably like podcasts. Uh, it's called Success Unlocked. Uh, I'm sticking with this one. You can find it on all of your favorite podcast players, or you can go to successunlocked.com. Uh, and also I have a little pack of like free resources if you want to download it. They're basically little exercises and activities that you can work through to start to strengthen the core bits of what goes on in your mind and start to reprogram it for confidence and motivation and all of that stuff. You can get it if you go to successunlocked.com forward slash reach successunlock.com forward slash reach um, you can go ahead and download that cool well we'll have all those links on there um, you said you're not big on social media but do you have pages there you want people to go check out or like yeah so you can follow me on instagram two instagrams success.unlocked is one of them somebody has success unlocked and they're not using it which is really annoying but success.unlocked <laughs> on instagram um and then uh, i am uh, i use my sunday name when i'm on stage so i am robert temple hypnotist on instagram if you want to follow like my shows and that stuff cool yeah somebody has reached the stars podcast on instagram too and they're not using it so we're reached the stars dot podcast because <laughs> you know you gotta you gotta you gotta work with what's there right totally otherwise yeah. you just end up putting it off for ages and i know exactly is better than perfect right as they say totally 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for being on the show. And uh, we'll have all the links in the show notes. And if you love this show, we're super happy that you that you want to listen to it and, and check it out. So if you want to support the show, you can check out our Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash reach the stars. And you get to check out the episodes early and you get fun little perks and blooper reels and outtakes and all sorts of fun stuff like that. If you do that. And if you could uh, give us a review on iTunes, that would make me very happy and helps other people to find out about the show, even though they normally wouldn't. So thanks so much for being with us on the reach the stars podcast. I've been your host, John Willoughby lore, also known as MC Vendetta and my guest Rob Temple. And I will see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. A single interaction has the power to change your life forever. This is a place for the stories of those moments. Stories of pursuing dreams, overcoming tragedy and failure, of coming back to life after so much of what feels like dying, of continuing on with only a vision as a map. This is the place where those moments live on. Come sit by the fire, look up at the stars, and be forever changed too. Thank you for being with us on the Reach the Stars podcast. Our theme music is generously provided by Byrocratic. You can find him on Bandcamp.com. Thank you to all of our current patrons, guests, and everyone else who helps make this dream a reality. We are so proud to be building this amazing community with all of you. If you love this podcast, please consider sharing with a friend, leaving a review on iTunes, and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash reach the stars. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the videos of these conversations. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, do something cool and tell us about it.